Welcome to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. As a warning, this podcast deals with difficult descriptions of violence. It is intended for mature audiences. It may also contain content that some find triggering or difficult to hear, and we really encourage you to hit pause, take a few breaths, walk away for a while, or do whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourself while you're listening. As always, I'm your host, Hannah Fordyce from House of Faith and Freedom. You can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. I'm here today with my dear friend and co-trainer, Nikki Osterhus. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. Great to be here. Um, as Hannah did say, I'm Nikki, and today we do have the opportunity to share this sacred space with an incredible woman of God and survivor, uh, and she dearly, dearly loves Christ. So please note that for the safety and privacy of our guests, all survivors will only go by a first name, which in some cases may be changed. That said, I'm so grateful to have Tori on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and sharing your personal story, we very much understand is not always easy, and it is sacred space, so we're trusting Christ with that. Um, It's personal, it's hard, challenging, vulnerable, but we also know it can be powerful. So Tell us a bit about why you decided to share your story. Sure. Um, So I have been out of the abusive marriage for five years. I've been divorced for three years. Um, It's been a very long, brutal journey. Um, During this journey, I had always wished that I had had somebody a few years ahead of me who went through the same issue of living in an abusive home. Um, but I didn't have that. So my hope is that I could give some kind of encouragement, some kind of hope um, to somebody who's in the middle of this difficult journey right now. I also would like to just give glory to God because he is the one and only that got me through um, the abusive situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I know often there are sort of early tells throughout a relationship or a marriage that something might be off. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your marriage and if there were any early sort of warning signs, what were they? Sure. So I actually went to um, middle school and high school with my ex-husband. We were in the same grade, the same class. We had a very small class, so we knew each other, you know, quite well. We started dating um, my our senior year. I knew he came from a, a difficult family background. His parents were uh, divorced. He lived with an alcoholic mom who was abusive. And um, yeah, when he he started when we started dating, he he didn't have really anybody. He had siblings, but really that was it. And I was able to, to meet some needs that he had. And that was just somebody who would care about him. And my family also cared about him, took him in like a son. And so that's kind of how it began. Um, 
I did not see any signs right away. We, we never had an easy marriage for sure, but I didn't see signs of abuse until about 16 years in. At that point, we had two boys, young boys, um, in third grade and in first grade. And when I first saw signs um, that something was wrong was when my youngest son was in first grade, my boys were in wrestling and we had just gotten back from an all day wrestling tournament on a Saturday. And my husband was not happy with my youngest son in particular because he didn't think he tried hard enough. He didn't do his best. So my ex-husband sat him down and yelled at him for over an hour. Now, mind you, he's six, six years old, and went on on how if you aren't going to try your hardest, you're going to do your best, you're wasting my time, you're wasting our money, we're not going to do this if you don't try your hardest. And again, this was yelling, not just saying the words. And I was horrified. I, I had never heard him yell like that. I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing to our first grader. And that was the first um, sign where I was like, wow, this is not good. This is not normal. Hmm. If we could back up for a moment, I mean, what was your hope for marriage? Sure. So all I wanted was to get married and have kids. And my hope was that we would serve the Lord together, not only as a husband and wife, but our whole family. Um, I certainly didn't expect an easy marriage or perfect marriage. Um, when I got married, my mom told me marriage is hard. It's hard work every day. And so I knew it was going to be hard and it was hard. Um, but, uh, we, we did serve the Lord together as a family. We, we served lots of different people in our church and, and that was great, but we had a different home life um, than what people thought we did. They thought my husband was pretty great because he served many people and he served them happily. Uh, but that's not what life was like at home. At home, he did not... Um, happily serve his kids or me as his wife at all. In fact, I learned early on not to ask for anything because anything I would ask for. And when I ask, when I mean ask for something, I mean like, Hey, I, you know, would you mind doing this for me? Cause you know, he's stronger, whatever, whatever the thing was that I wasn't good at. And he was good at it. He would purposefully not do it. I feel like this really speaks into um, the idea that a lot of times individuals who are um, abusive at home, it's, it's almost like you're seeing these dual personalities. They have like a persona that's out in the community and then inside their personal relationships, it's something totally different. Like the culture that they've created at home is different than the face they put on in other environments. And that is almost in itself the beginning of this sort of like crazy making feeling of like, am I insane? Because I watch other people's perspectives and experiences with this person, but that's not at all what my experience is. Like it, it in itself is really isolating. Um, 
do you feel like other people were able to see what was going on or was this something where like that was a barrier in itself to you understanding and talking about your marriage and some of the issues that were were happening inside the home no nobody knew what was going on at home um there were a few isolated occasions where my husband wasn't quite able to keep the control out in public. And there were a few displays like that where people were a little surprised. Um, but generally speaking, he had a, he had a good, um, a good show going when he was outside in public. Yeah. I think of like a, abuse being really about power and control. And so when we think of it in that context, it's both about controlling the spouse at home and the family environment, but it's also about controlling the perception that they put out into the world and how other people view them. And so I think it's pretty natural or common to see that kind of duality going on. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you, you mentioned the yelling incident with your youngest kid when he was in first grade? Did that hmm. progress? Like, did things stay, these isolated incidents here and there? Or um, do you feel like over time it became more common? Yes, it definitely progressed. Um, as the boys got older, the um, yelling sessions got more and more frequent because, of course, the boys became more independent, a um, little bit more outspoken, and things got worse and worse with, with each year that went by for sure. And I also know that you love to entertain and you love hospitality and having people into your home. What was that like? Cause the boys would have their friends over or yeah. What, were, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Um, that that's right. I did love to entertain. Um, I love to have families over for dinner and, and the boys would often have their group of friends over and I, it just brought me great joy to make good food for them to eat and, and let them just hang out, you know, for the day, for the night, whatever. So we did a lot of that, but uh, as things progressed getting worse, um, my husband would come in. He, so he worked at home. Um, so his work was at home on our property. And so he could kind of come in and out whenever he wanted to. And so it, it got to the point where my boys would have their group of friends over and my husband would come in and end up lecturing them, maybe yelling at them some, but he didn't yell too much when other people were around, but, but the lecturing would be humiliating to the boys, humiliating to me even um, that this would happen. And so I, I would try whatever way to kind of, keep him out if I could maybe bring dinner out to him so the boys could have their, you know, you know, their friends in without having an episode happen. But it got to the point where it, it didn't, I could not stop it. And so the boys then sort of transitioned from having our home be the, the typical home where everybody would hang out and they started um, trying to be gone as much as possible so as to not be getting into trouble. Um, because it was, it got to the point where it was um, almost on a daily basis. Somebody would be getting in trouble. Sometimes we all would get in trouble on a daily basis. But um, yeah, they just they shifted and and started to be gone as much as possible. 
When you say getting in trouble, can you describe a little bit more what that means or what that was like? Sure. And, and it would mean different things depending on who it was. For me, if I got in trouble, um, that would mean I would need to sit for an hour or two yelling and lecture time. And what I learned quickly was that I could not, it wasn't a, a communication between the two of us. It was him controlling the communication because I could not even respond to something that he said, like a normal conversation would go because I would get in trouble for being um, disrespectful, for interrupting him, that kind of thing. So then at the end of these long sessions, he then would, you know, say, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And by that point, my, my brain was literally just spinning. Like I, I couldn't even remember where he started. What was this even about? Because it would just be so confusing and I, I call it crazy making. And, and so it was just really hard to even be able to comment back to him at the very end of all of it, because he'd go from thing to thing and he would excuse me of doing things that he actually did. And it, it just, it really was crazy making. I, I got to the point where I thought I was going crazy. I'm like, I just didn't understand what was going on. And, and, and I knew it wasn't true. I the things he said, I knew it wasn't right. But when you're told that everything's your fault and you're told all these things that you did, that you didn't actually do, you, you do begin to think you're going crazy. Now for my boys, it meant something different. For them, certainly they would get, you know, yelled at more and such, but there would usually be extreme consequences for them as well. Um, and when I say extreme, I mean like grounded for a year. I mean, things that are just not even any reasonableness at all. So you mentioned that um, kind of at the beginning when you were talking about your hope for your marriage and um, that, I mean, faith is, is the center of everything for your life. And all you wanted out of marriage was to serve God well with your family and with your spouse. I feel like a pretty natural outflowing of that is your engagement in church. And especially when you start experiencing something that feels like it's off in your relationship to involve the church somehow. How did you feel like your church responded um, when you came to them for help or discernment in this area? Yeah, so when my boys were both in middle school, actually my oldest could have even been his first year in high school. I don't remember exactly, but it got to the point where things were really, really bad at home. Like I, it was, it was so constant and we were all walking on eggshells and it really, it was hard to function honestly through the day. And that is when I, I got in my car and drove because again, my husband worked at home and could come in at any time. So I, I went for a car ride and I called our pastor. We got in the same church for 30 years and, and that might be another piece of information that's we were married for 30 years. This is a long-term marriage. And anyway, so I called my pastor and I just gave him a summary of what was going on in our house. And I was crying. I was desperate. I was desperate for any 
bit of help because I didn't think that the boys and I were, could take much more of it. So I asked him for help. I said, we need help. And so he, um, and again, mind you, he, he knew my husband and he'd known him for, for 25 years and we were actually friends. So he never saw this side of him. And so it was, you know, a little surprising. Um, but he said he would counsel with us. So I then went home and I was afraid to tell my husband that I had called our pastor because I, I was really afraid of what he might do, how he might react. But he did, um, he did agree to go to counseling together with our pastor. So I, for the first time, felt like I had some hope, like we're actually going to get some help. And so I had hope that our marriage, our family could um, get some healing, get some help so that we could get off of this crazy train that we were living on, on a daily basis. So we did, we started, we started counseling on a weekly basis and um, started like marriage counseling, right? Just typical marriage counseling. Well, me as the wife, you know, I did, I needed to be more submissive and um, more helpful and, and, you know, agree more with him and go along with, with his thoughts and ideas and, and such, especially with the kids. And with my husband, he, you know, if he could just be a little more kind, a little more understanding, you know, to me and the boys, then, you know, we're probably gonna, this will be good. That that's kind of how it went. Well, we, we counseled with our pastor for almost four years and there was no improvement during that time. If, if anything, it was, it made things more severe at home because my husband did not like me talking about what he did at home. And I, I was very careful in counseling. I still did not feel very safe to, to really be completely honest and completely forthright with what was going on. I gave more of a, you know, kind of a, a little nutshell of what was going on. Right. But there were actually times in counseling where my husband would, would just take over the counseling session essentially, and would lecture me. I don't know that there was actually yelling because he really did have that kind of down to keep that, you know, not in public, but he, a little bit, he did, but mostly just tearing me apart in front of our pastor and um, how I, I don't go along with him. I'm becoming his enemy, those kinds of things. And I wasn't submissive. I was turning the boys against him, these kinds of things. And there was one session in particular where he just went off and, and our pastor let it happen. Like he didn't stop him and say, okay, you know what we need to, we need to just stop here, take a break you know, we need to go a different direction. Nothing like that happened. But after the fact, my pastor would either call or text and ask if I was okay, because he knew that I was just torn apart in the counseling session. And that was slightly confusing to me because my thought is, you let it happen. You allowed it to happen. You didn't stop it. You let it go on for like 45 minutes of our hour time. And um, so it, 
I would say uh, he did not realize that my husband was actually abusive until well into the fourth year. I feel like everything you're explaining is like, you're not the only person I've heard say that. And I think this is a really common, this is a really common error the church makes of immediately jumping into marital counseling or couples counseling. And, and it does exactly what you said, which is it's not a safe environment for the person, especially who's suffering under it to actually say what's going on. And it really can be this feeding ground for the other spouse to get ammunition to use later at home for anything that you say. So you're essentially gagged in that session. And then the, the other problem is that our um, silence essentially enables the abusive behavior. Like if you're, if you're not going to take action or speak against it, you're essentially siding with the abuser. And this is a really important thing to know because I think we have a tendency um, to as, as outsiders or bystanders or pastors or church leaders to really want to maintain this like neutral stance, especially if we know both people, like in your situation where, you know, you knew this pastor for 25 years, both of you did. Um, but that neutrality, it's not actually neutral. Like all you're doing there is allowing the one abusive partner who has all of the power right now to feel like they're continuing to be allowed to do whatever they want. And like that very clearly played out in him trying to maintain neutrality in your counseling sessions, which just ended up allowing you to get run over and, and essentially saying like some of it was somehow your fault too. You know, like we're in marriage counseling because you have issues also. And so does he, he has some issues, but you need to submit more. You need to do, you know, be, be a better wife essentially so that he doesn't feel the need to yell at you or blow up at you. Yeah. And so now we have what was happening in private happening in public within silence. Right. In this situation, like your pastor not saying anything in the counseling sessions to him essentially said it was okay. Like, it's okay that you're laying into her like this. That's somehow allowable or excusable. Um, Anyway, so you, I mean, you, you mentioned this went on for like four years, which is an incredibly long time also to be in couples counseling without any type of measured effect. That's a, that's a pretty long time. Like for you, I'm curious, at what point did you start to really realize like, okay, this is not a marriage problem. Like, of course, there's the underlying part of you saying, I, you know, these disciplines, these lectures, they're out of proportion for whatever triggered them. But at what point did you move away from being like, he maybe has an anger problem or like a trauma problem, or maybe I need to submit more, maybe I'm just crazy to being like, okay, this might actually be abusive. This might this might actually be a problem. And was there a time after you realized that, that you were able to try to communicate that to your church or your pastor? Yeah, so that's not an easy answer and not really a one statement to answer. What I would say is everything that we tried things got worse. I mean, we tried extreme measures. Not We didn't just do counseling. We, we went to like focus on the family crisis, marriage weeks, you know, traveled to different states to do these. And 
um, the follow-up then would be phone calls. And what we would find is, you know, immediately maybe my husband would go along with what, what they said for him to do. But it, within two weeks after getting back from this marriage crisis retreat, um, the, when the counselor called us to do our check-in, he was back doing the, the normal stuff, the long yelling lecture sessions, you know, the extreme measures and such. And that, that counselor said, you're going back to the same things. You've reverted back. And so he didn't want to do those sessions anymore. So what I learned was whoever told him that he was doing the wrong thing, that he really was being destructive, he cut that off. And that was the end of that. So that happened with the marriage crisis counselor. It eventually happened with our, our pastor as well. And how did, how did that happen? with your pastor? I mean, you mentioned that your husband was so convincing. Yes. Um, how did that happen? Yes. So he was very convincing. Um, so he had been communicating with our pastor by text, email, phone calls without me knowing it, which is fine, right? That's fine. But what I didn't know was he was trying to get our pastor to do an intervention with me because I was not being submissive. I was not going along with his ways. I was, in his words, turning our boys against him. And so he he talked his way into having the pastor come over and they did an intervention with me. And my pastor and my husband stood there in my home for over two hours. I think it was closer to three hours telling me that I need to be more submissive. I need to go along with his ways and I need to be more respectful and such. And I was sitting there silent, listening to all this. And, and finally, there was a pause where I could say something. I looked at our pastor and I said, I don't know what you expect me to do. My, my boys are, are turning rebellious and they're, they're being torn to pieces verbally. I'm being torn to pieces verbally. This is happening on a daily basis. We're barely functioning here. I don't know what you want me to do. And at that point, my, my pastor, I could see it on his face. He looked at me like all of a sudden the light went off and he was like, oh, you know, and that's about all he said at that point. But and this was after, you know, like I said, a long period of time of telling me how I need to change and how I'm really the main issue. And then I just said, I need to go. I need to go to bed. I, I cannot listen to, to any more of this. I'm exhausted. And so I did. I just went to bed. Well, the next day, my pastor, I can't remember if he called me or texted me, but he wanted to get together. He apologized and said, I'm so sorry. I, I wish I never would have came over. That was wrong. I don't, I, I listened to him and I, I see now that, that he was not right in what he was telling me. And I, I apologize for that. Will you meet with me so that we can talk about this more? At that point, I no longer felt safe to meet alone with our pastor. And so I told him that I said, I will meet with you, but it needs to be with my other counselor as well, because I don't feel safe being 
being with you anymore after that. And so we did, the three of us did meet. Um, he again apologized, wished he had not come over, wished he hadn't gone along with my husband's story of what was going on. He knew that that was all incorrect now. But my husband continued um, harassing my pastor by text, email, phone calls, wanting him to keep doing things to get me to change. And so my pastor at that point cut off communicate. He told my husband, I will not be communicating with you anymore. You're harassing me. You're badgering me. He now understood kind of what a piece of it was like living under him because that's what he did was he badgered us, um, my boys and I, almost continuously. And so he cut that communication off. I was no longer counseling with our pastor, I was now counseling with somebody else, one of our elders at our church. At this point, then our pastor and the elders called a meeting with my husband. He agreed to go. And they then said, you're destroying your family. You are destructive in your means of communication. You're extreme with your consequences, all these things. And then my husband left the church. Because what I learned quickly was you do not tell him that he's wrong. You do not tell him that he needs to change because what he will do is he will cut you off. And that's the end of that. So he left our church, started going to a different church. Um, one of our, our church plants of our church. Um, and mind you, again, we'd gone there for 30 years. We had served there for 30 years. I mean, we had a, we knew most people at the church. I mean, this was a big deal for him to leave the church, but that's what he did. Mm -hmm. And so what did the group of elders then, I mean, they told him he needed to stop. Were there other boundaries they set in place or? Yes. So then what they told him was that he needed to move out of the house to give the boys and I time to heal, some time to just kind of regroup because every day was was act, was really traumatic. You know, every day was walking on eggshells. Every day was getting yelled at and lectured. And it, it was really taking a toll on the boys and on me in physically, emotionally, spiritually, every way, it was just taking a toll on us. So they told him he needed to leave. So he went out and slept in our camper for a couple of nights. And what he would do, though, is because he worked on our property, he would come in and out all day long and just keep badgering, keep engaging. And um, I told my counselor that, who was one of the elders, and so then they told him that he needed to move off the property and not enter the house. Well, he was not willing to do that. So when that happened, he came into the house and with very, very angry eyes. I This is a different piece. Like when he would walk into the house, I would look into his eyes and I could see if his eyes were angry, that meant things were going to be really bad. If they were okay, then things would probably go all right. And I, his eyes were very, very angry. And he followed me around the house and he's like, this is my house. I am not leaving. You leave. And he just 
followed me. And I, I was actually afraid of him at, at that moment. I was afraid. And my youngest son was home. He was downstairs. And so I went downstairs and just sat on the couch just to be by him to get away from my husband. And so I stayed down there for probably 40 minutes. And when I thought he maybe had gone back outside, I went back upstairs and he was waiting around the corner for me again with those angry eyes. And he just followed me in a, a very controlling, um, scary way. And honestly, I don't remember what happened at the point. If he went out, I, I don't remember. A lot of it is, is fuzzy now because this is five years ago. But um, what I will say is I, I talked to my counselor the next day and he said, yeah, you, you guys, you and your son need to leave then. And so that's what we did. We packed up some of our clothes and we left. I, did, I didn't know where we were going to go, but my son actually stayed with a friend for about a month. I stayed in a hotel for about a week trying to figure out where I was going to go. And then I stayed with friends for a couple of weeks. And then somebody at our church had like a mother-in-law apartment. And that's where my son and I ended up moving into then for about nine months. We stayed there. This, this part of your story, I think is one of the parts where we often sort of end it there. Like, okay, you're no longer in the house or you've air quotes left the relationship, but there's so much more that happens afterwards. Like you said, you, you had to find somewhere for you. You had to find somewhere for your son. Like you're starting your life over everything, especially when you've been in a marriage that's 30 years long, everything has to be separated. You have to find all of these things that were combined and that you had built together. Now you have to rebuild by yourself. Now you have to rebuild alone. What was that process like for you? How did God provide for you in that space? And also what challenges did you face as you really like moved into this next phase of life? Yeah. So by the point that my son and I got out of the house, I would say I, I really was barely functioning. And what I mean by that is getting up and getting out of bed each day was a mountain to climb. It it, it was very difficult to do the next thing. I, I had told my husband for years that I felt paralyzed. I felt frozen, like my entire body, like I, it was difficult to even move. So even though we were out of the house, my body was still in that state. It, it was in a paralyzed state. Doing anything was overwhelming and seemed like too much. So yes, we had to figure out everything, separate everything. While I was out of the house, that's true. Um, but a lot happened then. With, within a couple of months, I found out my husband was having an affair. Shortly after that, then he um, emailed me and said he was filing for divorce. And so there was just a lot going on. So that paralyzed state lasted a long time. I did get um, get in with a trauma and abuse therapist that specialized in that. And that was a miracle in itself, how God provided for me, because 
when I found out about her, I, I called her and got on the waiting list and she said it might be a good six, seven, eight months before you can get in because I've got a long waiting list. Well, miraculously, I got in with her within a couple of weeks and I was just like in awe of how, how God first, you know, made me aware of her and then got me in in a couple of weeks was a miracle. So we started work, um, working on emotional and physical symptoms that I had from these years of abuse, just really practical things um, that she gave me. Cause like I, I was not sleeping at night. I will, if I fell asleep, I would wake up in sheer panic that he was after me. He was chasing me. He was going to get me and kill me is what I thought. And so I was terrified. I barely left the house. I was terrified to leave the house. I was terrified to go to the grocery store, um, to go into church, anything. So yes, not only just do you have to figure out how to do the day-to-day basics and live, and I worked too, you know, and thankfully I could work a lot from home. So that was also a gift, but to just figure out how, how to take the next step, you know, um, health insurance, dividing up finances. How do I get stuff out of the house? Because we left with nothing. My husband had the house. He had everything that we owned together. He had. So I would say God, you know, I had amazing friends that God blessed me with that, that did walk with me while I felt like I truly was alone. I wasn't, I, I obviously the Lord was with me every step of the way and, and gave me what I needed. He provided in ways I, I couldn't even know to ask for. That is remarkable, honestly. And your oldest son at this point, and how did he escape all of this? Yes. So I actually homeschooled my boys, but my oldest son decided he wanted to go to high school his junior year. And so he did, but things were so bad at home. He said, mom, I want to, I want to graduate a year early. I want to get out of here. And so I helped him do that. And what I mean by helped him was, um, so I had homeschooled him up until then. And he had a lot of extra credits, whatever. So I got his transcript together figured out what would count, what wouldn't count, whatever, and made it all work so that he could actually graduate a year early. And he did, he got out, he moved to a different state and he, he never moved back home again after that. So it felt so good to have one of us was out and free from that. Um, So yeah, so that is actually a good point of why you know, two of my boys didn't get kicked out. He was already gone because he could not stand living there anymore. How did you feel like um, in this this period of the separation and then subsequent divorce and the additional sort of knife in the side of your husband having an affair when you were still technically married? I mean, how did the church handle this? Like you, you were still attending there, even though he was at a different church. What was their 
response like? Yeah, so um, at this point, they're all, you know, if I would talk to them, it, they would be sympathetic, you know, with what was going on. But at one point, when I found out that he was having the affair and attending that other church with that woman, and I happened to have um, some people I knew that attended that church, and that's how I first found out about it was, you know, they told me he's sitting in church with his arms around another woman and we're married still. And I, I was just like, I was already in a paralyzed state and hearing that was just like, my brain couldn't even comprehend it. So I went to my pastor and a couple of the elders and I asked them if they would talk to that pastor. They knew that pastor, right? It's that's our, our plant, our church plant of our church. Um, if they would go talk to either him or my husband about him, you know, having this affair and, and attending a church and being physically connected with her during this church service. How is that happening? How is that other pastor allowing that? But they, they would not do that. They were more concerned about their relationship with that other church. And so they were not willing to go and confront either that pastor or my husband about these things. So I, obviously I felt extremely betrayed by my husband on so many different levels and abandoned by him on so many different levels. But at this point now, I really felt abandoned by my church as well. I, I, how I felt was I was not worth them taking that step and going and confronting that pastor or, or my husband about these issues. And I, I couldn't comprehend that. I just couldn't. It was extremely difficult. You bring up this reality that in some ways the abuse was two-sided of like, you had it from your husband, but then there was sort of this additional, like, for lack of a better term, salt in the wound of the church initially not believing that it was abuse and actually putting some of the blame on you for not being a submissive enough wife. And then also having this, this unwillingness to defend you repeatedly throughout your story. Like they just were not willing to stand in the gap and, and risk a confrontation on their own behalf in order to protect you. Where did that leave you with church in general? Like that's a hard pill to swallow. And when I think about some of the physical symptoms that you experienced in your household from that repeated trauma, was there like, what did that translate to in the, the house of God, if you will, like in the physical church building in which you'd been repeatedly subjected to, you know, couples counseling sessions and being blamed or having an intervention on you or just not being believed or thinking it was worthy of defending you? Yeah, so I did at this point still keep going to the church, to my home church. Um, it was extremely difficult to walk into church. I I would sit in my car and I would actually labor breathe and telling myself, you can get out of the car. You can walk into church. You can do it. And I would have to psych myself up to actually walk into the church. I did have some friends that typically sat in the, towards the back row and I would 
sit with them. So I always knew where I was going to go and sit. And then I would normally leave during, there's music at the end of the service as well. And I would normally leave before the music was done so that I didn't have to see people and I didn't have to talk to people because it, you, you deal with a lot during an experience like this. What I mean by that is I was constantly thinking, what do people think of me? What do they know? Are they talking about me? You know, did they think it's all my fault? You know, and just all these things. And, and I, I got married for life and now I'm going down the road of divorce and there's just so much guilt and shame and, and worried about what other people thought of me that it was just so difficult to even enter into that church. And then feeling like my pastors, like the church leadership didn't stand with me. They, they, they kind of, after we were done counseling together too, it was kind of, they just kind of left me alone. Like they weren't involved still. They weren't really checking on me to make sure I was doing okay. And, and they didn't check on my boys to see if my boys were doing okay. Um, the, like the youth pastor, my boys were in youth group the whole way through. Not one call, not one text. Hey, heard what's going on. Are you okay? Nothing. And that was extremely painful. So it got to the point because I had so many difficult things that I had to do, right? I had to figure out my life for my boys and for me now with this new um, situation, right? No, no more husband, no more family. We had to figure it all out and it was hard. And I made the decision. I did not have to enter church. I did not have to do labor breathing to get myself to be able to walk into church. So I stopped, I stopped going. Um, I did after some time start going to a different church with a friend but then that circumstance changed where she wasn't able to go to that church anymore. And so I, I actually don't attend church right now because it is too difficult to walk into church by myself. I, I literally just can't do it yet. Now, with that said, do I believe in the church? Do I believe that we're called as Christ followers to, to meet and at this point, I, I just can't do it. Yeah. And we have to remember, first of all, Tori, thank you for even being able to respond to that at all. Because we're talking about, and what I'm hearing you say and speak of, is a ton of loss and grief starting from early, early in marriage. I mean, the grief of not even, and the loss of not even being able to entertain for your boys um, friends for them to come over and the loss of this and the loss of that. And then, and starting a complete life over. And then somehow in the name of Jesus, a loss of a church body when it's not about leaving the 99 for the one and becomes, um, yeah, <laughs> To, to experience loss or abandonment now within the context 
of the place where we can all come together and love Jesus together is just about annihilating. How did Christ just get you through? And you've gone through so much healing now, sadly, outside of, you know, church, I guess, formal church context. But how have you seen Christ raise you up in this healing? How has he sustained you in these, you know, just in, in the more recent years? Yeah, you're right. I have had a lot of healing, um, in particular in the last probably four years. The counselor was just so important in my healing. We talked about that a little bit already, but I would say God really gave me the gift of faith because I would not have kept my faith on my own. I wouldn't have. Um, even, you know, when it got to the point where you know, I found out my husband's having an affair. He is filing for divorce. I never lost faith during that time. And I am so grateful that God gave me the faith that I needed to keep walking with him. And that's what he did. But it wasn't just that too. I, I um, have um, amazing friends that walked with me once. By this point, obviously, my family knew because before that, my parents didn't even know, and they were a huge support. Um, I'm in a support group now of abuse uh, victims and survivors, and that's been amazing. I've seen healing in my boys, which brings healing to my soul, like you would not believe. So those are some of the practical ways, I guess, that that has happened. So... If you were to, I mean, with your heart's voice, if you were to enter into um, the auditorium of your church, and if you could say something to the people there, truly, what would you, what would you want them to know, or what would you want them to hear? Yeah, that is a really great question and a really important question. And I think I would answer that different, differently for people who are still in the abusive relationship compared to people that are maybe out of the relationship now and that are trying to get their life back together on their own. Um, what I would say, um, some important things for the church to know is the abuse victim is probably barely hanging on. They're probably barely making it through the day. And any even tiny little task seems like climbing a mountain. It's overwhelming to even take the next step and do the next thing. And I don't think people realize that. And so I think then it is crucial for the church to be reaching out to these women um, they may have practical needs. They may need food. They may not have a place to live. I mean, just practical things. And it is going to be so overwhelming for them to do these things on their own. They also need to realize women who are still in it and maybe even after they're out before they get healing, they may actually not want to live. And I don't think the church understands that. Like I wanted to die. Many, many, many days, many years, I didn't want to keep living. 
it, it was so difficult to get through the day. And the church needs to understand that to even get up, to get through the day is extremely brutal. So reaching out consistently, not once a month, not once every other month, consistently making sure they're okay. First of all, emotionally, are they okay? Do they have the basic needs? If not, the church should be coming, coming around them and making sure they have those things they need. Um, help with kids. If you have young kids, you, you probably now have to work. And what do you do with your kids? There are so many practical things. They might need help finding a job. You know, um, talking through things with them, because when you are in abuse and even if you're out, your brain is cloudy. You can't think clearly. The abuse is all consuming. Right. And so to think of anything else is very hard to do. So to make good, logical decisions is difficult when you have not had healing. I think the other thing that would be important for churches to understand is for that victim to walk into church is going to be very difficult. Once people know it is very difficult, you, you, they probably feel like they're being judged. They probably feel like people are talking about them. You know, do people think it's their fault? All of these things on top of the abuse it is extremely difficult and the leadership needs to know they should be going up to that person and just greeting them, hugging them, loving them. I'm so glad you're here. Don't stop coming. We need you here. We want you here. They need to hear those things because the other thing we got to remember is Satan is filling our, us full of lies too, right? You're not worth anything. You're divorced now. You're getting divorced now. All these things that you're dealing with. Another thing that is important for the church to know is if the person got out and if they're going through a divorce, court is brutal. That church leadership, somebody from the church leadership should be at every single court time because to walk in there, first of all, you're in court with your abuser, right? So that alone is traumatic, but then Everything that court involves is overwhelming and fills you full of fear and anxiety. And to have your church leadership there standing beside you, showing that you're not going to be alone is really, really important. So, and, and to me, these things are the church being the hands and feet of Jesus, which that's, we're commanded to do that. We are commanded to be the hands and feet of Jesus. If the church isn't doing these things, they're not, they're not doing what they're meant to do. I love how you say that. It's, this is a call. This is a mandate of the church. It's a part of the gospel. This is, this is very much a part of, like you said, being the hands and feet of Christ, showing his love in tangible, physical ways that are consistent and consistently present. Um, yeah, I just think that's beautiful. And I would also add to it, before any of those things, believe the person, full stop. 
just believe them and immediately start separate counseling. <laughs> I feel like I have to add that in. Immediately start separate counseling. Don't do marriage counseling. Um, but then just look for ways that you can step in and be there and be present. And I know when we've previously talked, and I kind of want to leave off with this, three resources that you found really helpful. And I'll link them all in the podcast description. But if you want to give those, I think that could be a nice way to send off the, the podcast. Yeah, I would love to do that. And Hannah, if I could just say one statement about what you just finished talking about is the church should realize whatever the, the victim is telling you, it's probably 10 times worse at home. For sure. And that's really important for them to know. Yes, mm -hmm. I um, there are three books that really opened my eyes to abuse that helped me understand abuse and what it does to you and what the abuser is doing. Um, super helpful in my healing process. Um, one of the books is Healing from Hidden Abuse by Shannon Thomas. The second is The Emotionally Destructive Marriage by Leslie Vernick. And the third is Psychopath Free by Jackson McKenzie. Yeah. And as Tori mentioned, all three of those books are awesome. And I will link them in the description for you. And I hope you take the time to pick them up and do a little bit of further research because we can just never know or learn too much about this subject. It's complex and it's difficult and it's challenging and it's going to be different in every single relationship. With that said, um, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Tori. I really appreciate you sharing your experience with us. Thank you. Yeah, and it is clear that your heart is for Jesus. <laughs> You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom and 321 Media with your hosts, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, check out our website, houseandfaithandfreedom.org.